For over 30 years, Damien Mayer has worked at the intersection and overlap of technology and design. Straight out of university, he set up Fusion and he landed his first client when he asked Apple Computers to borrow some of their computers. It was a massive sliding doors moment and a lesson in if you don't ask, you don't get. Damien has incredibly deep views about both culture and customers and this led him to create his own hosting company so that Fusion could provide better services to their clients. It's transformed the revenues of the business and has held them in great stead as technology and experience further came to the fore. Damien says when you think about marketing and technology, you need to be more like a conductor, understanding how all the pieces of marketing work in concert. Also, he believes that you need to have a deep understanding of the technology that can support marketing activities, but it shouldn't come at the cost of creativity. Creativity is very important. Damien wants to write down many of his learnings, and I can see why. Even in our brief 45-minute chat, I gleaned a huge amount of insights and different ways to look at marketing and technology and experiences. I'm certain you two will gain a lot from our chat. Enjoy. Damien Mayer, co-founder and director of Fusion, co-founder and advisory board member at Joust, director and board member at multiple other companies. Welcome to Discipline. Morning. You went to Launceston College. Are you a Tasmanian? No, I'm not. Um, born and bred in Victoria. How did you uh, end up in Tasmania? Um, I, basically, my parents uh, separated and then both remarried and my mum and stepfather moved to Tasmania when I, when I was a sort of primary, late primary school um, and then basically completed high school there and then did year 11 and 12 before escaping. And you escaped to Adelaide? Yes. Um, so I was pretty much from a young age really always interested in kind of how things kind of worked and found um, sort of, you know, gravitating towards sort of technology and design, even though I didn't really know what those things were at the time in, in high school, and then really started to focus in those two areas. In um, year 11 and 12, you know, did computer science, but yep. then on the flip side was doing um, art for both years of 11 and 12. So then, um, you know, once I kind of graduated from, you know, did HSC, it was around, well, what sort of career kind of area yep. and was quite interested in, you know, what I think I had a friend at the time whose mum was a graphic designer and she did work with, um, it was pre-ANSET. I'm trying to think what the airline was before they. TAA? Yeah, it might have been. But So it was really like I got to see my friends, what the work that my friend's mum did and she was in Tasmania. She was also sort of flying to Melbourne and working on this yep. kind of with these big brands and I saw sort of, deliverables and stuff in their house and I thought that looks pretty cool yeah. so um so once I graduated I really um wanted to find where's the best design school in Australia and there was really I was flipping between I think it was RMIT or Deakin in Melbourne and there was um the Uni University of South Australia at the Underdale campus yes yeah and Underdale seemed to have a very strong reputation out of those three so Basically visited them and then applied to um, go to Underdale. Luckily got in because it was quite a tough kind of process. Yeah, so that's really how I ended up here. Um, and then very quickly into that process, um, you know, I was always using kind of computers in high school. You know, we had like VIC-20, Commodore 64, Amstrads. Um, BBCs? And, yeah, we had BBCs in our, um, interestingly in our, in my high school, in Tasmania was one of the kind of the first schools to have a full suite of BBCs yeah, networked. Right. And 
I, I nearly, you've just reminded me of a story. I nearly got kicked out of school because um, it was it was locked down with, you know, a username and password to get onto the kind of network with a system admin. And I, and I our um, computer teacher at the time had a red MG and I just kept trying passwords and, and worked out his password was red MG. Yes. Got on the network, yeah. changed the password yeah. and then basically everyone was locked out, including the the computer science or computer lecturer and um, they basically i got a call from my mum sorry my mum got a call and i got dragged into the headmaster's office and said what have you done to the computer suite and they just basically guessed that i i was the kind of the culprit so i had to kind of fess up and say yeah i was it was me i had to give them my new password that i put on their <laughs> network so that they didn't kick me out of school because i was threatened with being expelled over it you were the you were the original hacker the original WikiLeaks. yeah my mum wasn't very happy about that so straight out of university you then go and set up this company fusion yes yep so um yeah myself and two other guys who are studying you know we're in the same kind of year we did some joint projects um in our final year and that was really around doing what at the time was called multimedia because the internet really wasn't a thing yep. at the time. So we were we were working um, predominantly with um, Macromedia Director, yep. which is yep. which was quite a, a, an awesome tool. And um, you know you had a fair bit of control, and you could create your own kind of world within that that space. And um, so we we kind of said, well, we all got offered really good jobs. You know, we were kind of top of our kind of year. At the, at the upon graduation and um, the other two guys they went off and went to an exhibition in France it was called Melia with one of the projects that we worked on um, representing sort of um, Asia Pacific and I was lucky enough to um, win a um, scholarship that was with um, Adobe sorry it was with Aldus which then became yeah, yes, Adobe yeah, so yeah. I, was, I was able lucky enough to go over to um spend um, a good couple of months um, at Adobe's um, offices in Seattle. That would have been and eye-opening as a yeah, young, young man. Yeah, it was, it was, it was um, inspirational. And yeah. it, was, it was amazing seeing you know, the inner workings of a software company. It was interesting being in the kind of the epicenter of how they were being developed and you know, tested. And yeah. I, I remember um, going down into the, the sort of, it was the basement of um, one of the buildings in Seattle and it was just full of printers and it was all for them to test um, their software. I think it was like where they were testing, you know, PageMaker yeah, right. at the time, testing how the oh, software would print okay. on all of these, you know, there was probably like 500 different models of printers in their basement that they yeah. would basically test the kind of the output of their their kind of software. They didn't even have a module to sort of... Um Emulate, emulate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all you know. The proof was in the pudding on the paper. Unreal. Yeah. So I think it was a. It was quite inspirational to see, um, you know, how ones and zeros plus design were being brought together and then you know turned into at the time which was packaged products. You know, they were burning onto CDs and shipping them in little you know boxes. Yeah. I think you know they've you know if we if you look at Adobe, it's probably a a textbook example of a dare I say an old school software company that transformed itself into being a cloud business and I think I recall reading something where they had a lot of struggle you know they're a listed entity you know talking to their shareholders and even to their own business about like we're going to we're going to give up you know shipping kind of you know shrink wrap software yeah and we're going to basically you know people are going to subscribe and we're not we're going to miss out on you know these big 
big kind of you know purchase cycles of the new version it's just going to be incremental subscription updates and you know it was a big fundamental change of their business model but also their not only the way they kind of you know sold their product but the you know the way they were the mindset and yeah i think you know they didn't grow up in the cloud but they've now become you know a, a very good example of how software can basically you know evolve and be used developed it's rated and, and the- i think there's two interesting things from that one is if you look at the accounting software myob didn't evolve to the cloud and you look at where they are now compared to zero i mean they're they're nowhere so that could have been adobe's fate and secondly it'd be amazing to look at the the curve of where their revenues would have gone and declining with this you know uh, cloud um coming in and competing against them compared to where they are now once their creative cloud took over because it's easy now to just buy a product for $30 a month with Adobe. You take what you need. You don't need to spend $800 back in the day to buy Photoshop. Mm. Um, Their revenues must have accelerated far past where that previous business model was, I reckon. So going back, you're inspired by this trip to Seattle and Adobe. Um, The entrepreneurial spirit that you've carried with you, I mean, was that something when you decided to start a business? Was that just naivety or you actually wanted to be a, a business owner? Um, I think a bit of a bit of naivety. Um, however, you know, when when we graduated from uni, the three of us we were pretty much like broke, you know, on old study, like, you know, really like living on noodles and that type of thing. So when you when you're starting from a very low base, you you don't have much to lose. So I think because we all had basically secured sort of the dream kind of positions that we wanted, it would, would have been really easy just yes. to go on plonking and, yeah. and go into the workforce. And that's and the path most of your contemporaries probably took. They did. And, and you know, I can tell you probably six months in, we were definitely thinking whether that was the right decision. <laughs> um, you know, when, you know, people that are our kind of peers who... Earning 30 grand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, probably <laughs> buying a car or something like that. And we're kind of, you know... You know, filling out a kind of doll form or something at the time, um, you know, as we're kind of trying to win win clients and that type of thing. Um, there was definitely a few moments around, you know, do we do we actually, you know, go down the traditional path? But I think um, I recall we went and met an advisor at the time when we kind of were just getting the kind of the company structure set up, and he was he was almost overly negative. He's going, you know, you know. You know, boys. You know, you're going to go out of business, and like 95 percent of you know small business. So you know, you need to kind of think about that right now. And it was almost like great motivation. Yeah, it was almost like, mate, you've you've laid down a challenge for me because I don't. So I think there was definitely, a, um, you know, a bit of no, nah, I'm not going to not going to listen to someone who's so negative like that and see that that's kind of our kind of future. So um, I think also in having worked pre uni in pretty rubbish jobs you know if you go and do some work in a factory or you know even like you know used to do like a paper round and all that type of thing yes you know how mundane work can be so therefore you know of all the challenges that are running your own kind of business at least you've got some you know control over yes. designing what you do and designing your kind of you know, environment and how where you want to go and you can make kind of changes whereas fear is a great motivator yeah yeah so I was going to ask, you know, you, you three of you before you're getting this advisory uh, person inspiring you to uh, find a job. Where did your first client come from? 
Um, and what was that like? Really, really interesting backstory on that. So in, in, a, in a nutshell, if it wasn't for Apple, Fusion wouldn't exist. Apple um, used to have like a, a little a little office in Adelaide. In the final year of uni, we um, borrowed some computers from them because we had pretty much had rubbish equipment at our uni at the time in comparison to what we kind of needed to, you know, to compress video to make it spin off like a floppy disk or a CD-ROM, you know, things which most people these days don't have to even worry about. You can do it on your phone. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, uh, we sort of had a kind of a bit of a relationship with Apple Computer and then when we when we graduated we went and we basically went and saw Apple and said look we're going to start this business um, we don't have any money we probably don't have any idea um, we definitely don't have any clients but can we borrow some computers please and when we have some money and some clients we'll, we'll, we'll pay for them is that would that be okay um, and the state manager at the time you know he probably he, he humoured us a bit, and then and then a, and then a couple of days later, he gave us a call. Said, "Come in, I've been thinking about you guys. I want to have a chat." Wow. Yeah. So we we kind of you know, <coughs> naive, you know, freshman out of uni, wandered into into the, into Apple's head office here in Adelaide, and um, um, guy called Roy Romich, who was the state manager at the time, said, "Look, I've been I've had a good think." about your proposition I'm not I'm not going to give you any computers I just make that kind of clear but I've got some other thoughts so what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to lend you some computers I'm going to give you some office space and I've got your first project that's extraordinary yeah that's a good lesson for don't ask don't get it is and I think that's that you know that thing you know don't ask don't get or don't try you know don't try and see what you can achieve has probably been something that you know it's stuck with me for the test of time you know always try and don't you know i don't really like the word can't so you just kind of try things and you, you know you, you can get a no but you might not get a no the third time yes you never know any so you never know if you don't ask if, if you don't try yeah so um roy um basically um was quite generous in the fact that um they they basically had a little boardroom. He said you can have that room, take the boardroom table out, go over and see Indrik and choose what computers you would you would kind of like. Where where they were sponsoring um, the state theatre company at the time, and he saw an opportunity of perhaps them not doing a, a printed sort of guide for the year, but it, it could be a it could be augmented with a CD-ROM that, that had you know video content okay. and a multimedia yeah, yeah. experience yeah. on it. So that was our kind of first project, and there was a little bit of money. At the time, it was it, it felt like a lot of money, but it, it was very exciting. But it was you know it was it was working with um you know we were working out at Apple's office, um and all Roy really asked in terms of um you know reciprocation of that was could he show when they had people coming in potential clients that they were trying to you know get on board with their kind of platforms could he come and show them around and we could talk about how we're using the Apple kind of technology to achieve what we were doing. Um, and then they did corporate nights and we would get up and basically showcase some work as well. And out of that, we had, you know, an entree into a whole lot of corporates, education institutions. Um, Apple was doing other joint kind of projects. Um, what an amazing sliding door moment. Yeah, it was It was like what was nice was it was someone giving us a go in just really sort of three guys who didn't really know that well. Um, and it was like it was like a, a, a sort of a, a corporate incubator, yeah. but it was way before that was yeah. even a concept yeah. where organisations were trying to partner with startups yeah. to then help them, yeah. give them that supporting kind of framework 
Um, and and it, it really led to, you know, one client led to the next client that led to another client. And we were there 18 months um, and then we'd basically grown enough that we could sort of, you know, afford to go out and sign a lease on some rent and we'd paid for our kind of computer so we could take those with us. So were you 18 months into it before you sort of looked around and said, wow, we, we've, we've created a business here? Yeah, I think, you know, when you first can pay yourself a salary, yes. I think that's when you, yeah, you know, yes. you've, you've, you've created a business. Yep. We, well, I think we were able to achieve that probably eight months in, but, you know, up until that point, we, 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 you know, everything we had, we were putting back in and, uh, you know, we put on we put on an employee before we paid ourselves. So, yep. you know, it, it's a... It's a there's definitely some pain with, you know, startup kind of processes and, and I think a lot of people don't realise probably the emotional, mental yeah. and um, physical um, input. I would say anyone who hasn't been through it has little comprehension of yeah. it, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think it's interesting now. It seems quite sexy to, I'm doing a startup. Now, fast forward a little bit because you've got offices in Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne. Um, you've got some shared space there with another company you're in. How many people have you got on your payroll now? So our total, so we've essentially got two businesses. So we have like Fusion Group, which has essentially got Fusion Digital, which is our professional services businesses around digital. And we've got Halix, which is a cloud hosting and managed services business. So across those those two entities, we've got 52 full-time staff. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's a big leap from starting a business to having 50 people under your uh, under your management what about these challenges that have come along with revenue in a digital agency, especially the professional services side where it's more project specific? Um, you know, in old parlance, you're only as good as your your last deal. So is setting up your cloud hosting business to offset that sort of living hand-to-mouth kind of thing with the professional services? Um, it was It was probably not as strategic as that but it's definitely evolved into into that kind of form so when we when we when we kind of started fusion we did work with some external hosting companies and to be frank didn't have a very good experience and if anything ever went wrong clients would always ring us yep. so we were dealing we were the kind of the first port of call in those scenarios so we started to get annoyed around well if we're going to take the call we're going to take the heat if something's going wrong maybe we should just basically be the hosting company or provide those services so very early in the day, we started, you know, we, we built, you know, credit, bought our own hardware and, you know, adding into our kind of rack and running our own kind of hosting for um, generally for our clients. So then we could provide what we felt was fusion level of service um, to those clients. So doing hosting was really out of necessity to be able to provide better service to our clients at the time. And that kind of kept growing and growing and growing. And then when... Then when we um, we basically sold some equity into um, SDW, which is now called WPPAUNZ, and they had a hosting business within their portfolio that wasn't doing very well at the time. So we we kind of looked at that and um, the WPP management noticed that we had a hosting kind of part of our business that was doing well and they're going, well, you've got one, you guys have got one that's doing well, we've got one that's basically not. Can we do anything there? So we ended up negotiating a... A, a a deal share so, transfer yeah the, the mechanics um I can't even recall the mechanics but it was it was a, basically a deal that meant that we didn't have to kind of you know write a whole 
you know, put our hand in and write a holiday cash. It was really like a sort of reward over time if we could kind of turn it around to give them yeah, some return. Yeah. Um, and so we basically um, took over that business, um, which is called Halix, and, and kind of reconfigured it, got in a new team, and then basically rolled our hosting business into, into that, that business as yeah. well. And, um, you know, that's... It, that they are very different businesses so like you know it's it's a it's more a kind of a you know more predictable kind of business yes. to run because yeah. you you're generally working with you know annuity multi, revenues yeah annuity um, you know multi-year kind of contracts and you know you generally if you're doing what you should be doing in that type of business you shouldn't have a high attrition of clients um if you're really looking after them you know keeping keeping the kind of the engine kind of running it's funny because you say it wasn't strategic, but, you know, if you go back to what you were interested in as a young person, uh, the artistic side mm-hmm. and the computer side, you've got two businesses doing both of those things. So it seems like they're actually a reflection of what you love as well. Yeah, look, I think, you know, right, right from the outset, um, you know, as I was saying, I was always interested in how, how do things work and how they put together and, you know, love pulling things apart and, seeing, you know, what made things tick and if I could put them back together and they worked after, that would be a, a bonus. bonus. <laughs> um, and, and I've always kind of thought the same thing around, you know, what we do in terms of digital, that it's always thought it's better to treat it as a product yeah. than treating it just as a, as a kind of a service. Yes. And, um, you know, that's very much where um, a lot of the things we're kind of doing in Fusion at the moment is really around um, developing kind of products yep. and then leveraging sort of the IP and always been able to um, improve a product. You know, often with, and this is one of the things which I think probably lots of people who work in digital land get frustrated with it, is they almost always just get to that kind of first version of something and never get to evolve it beyond that. Yes. Um, so... You know, by taking sort of, you know, ownership and building some IP packaging up as a product and building programs around to support those products, yep. you then have a, you know, ability to kind of, you know, build out a roadmap and evolve the actual product over time to meet kind of the needs of, you know, the end users and also the organisations which are using that product. So, you know, that's really been a focus um, of Fusion for the past, um, you know, past couple of years, putting more focus on that. And, and also within the Halix business is really kind of pack, productizing the service offer. Yes. So it's sort of, you know, it might not be a, you know, a tangible product, but it's it's taking a productization mindset yep, yep. To, to even how do you put together a proposal. Yes. And so that you're not doing the same, you know, a unique thing every time. You've basically got something that's 95% there. And I was going to ask, does that then give Fusion this um, competitive advantage? Because, you know, You've got a lot of digital agencies or app developers out there um, and you're focusing on more the end user experience from what I can can gather. So my question would then be, one, what's the sweet spot? Um, and two, did, again, were you strategic about it or just evolve for you? Um, definitely strategic. So probably you know, one of our flagship products is a, a mobile banking um, platform that's used by it's used by seven, sorry, nineteen brands in Australia in in the credit union and member owned kind of banking yep. kind of space, and we've just signed up another nine credit unions in New Zealand and another one in Australia. So essentially, we'll say about 30, 30 or so different brands are using the same kind of platform, and you know that really came out of we were developing 
that as a solution, like a point solution for a couple of clients. And then we we saw an opportunity with another organization who was servicing multiple clients. So we, you know, we approached them and yep. said, look, we've got this kind of this IP, it seems to be relevant to many of your clients. How can we kind of package this up together and go to market? Yes. And we were able to achieve that and, you know, within a within a kind of a short period of time, get a significant number of, you know, clients onto that. And then we and then from that we designed a like a program that supports it, you know, where we have sort of foundational clients who invest in some funding and that funding gets used to evolve that product, you know, in a multi year kind of roadmap. Yes. Um yep. And because this is in financial services, the you know the demands from end consumers are relentless, and their demands are not only from the way they use other applications in their life, you know, the Instagrams and Facebooks and whatever. That sort of simplicity and how easy it is to do things, they expect that from you know their banking kind of provider. And then there's also challenger banks, you know, coming into the marketplace yep. in Australia. Yep. who are also setting an agenda, and it's very much a technology. Cust- yeah, and customer experience-driven agenda, and um, you know, so we we help our clients basically get to a level with evolving a product, yeah, um, that they wouldn't be able to achieve if they were working with a digital agency just on its own. If yeah. that makes sense. So they've they've got kind of there's there's leverage there in terms of you know how they're leveraging their funding, they're getting more bang for buck. Well, talking about the the marketing side, then the sort of. Um agency side you've been across it for decades what do you see the the biggest changes that have happened over the last few years oh i think i think you know marketing is is now a technology you you need to have a deep understanding of the technology that can support marketing activities um i don't think it should come at the cost of creativity you know yep. you st- creativity is still um, highly important and you know you can keep you know ab and multivariate testing rubbish and it's still rubbish it's not going to make it any better so it, creativity shouldn't be kind of shunned and put in the corner um but in terms of the you know the delivery platforms that are where 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 is your tribe that you're trying to engage with yeah and, and and you know have you know have them resonate with your kind of messaging it's generally on technology platforms you need to understand how all those platforms work? Yep. The you know the the customer journey, how people are moving in about a different platforms and want to pick things up and start in a, in another place. So it's you know the the kind of the traditional four P's and that type of thing. I think is very that's taught at universities. Unfortunately, still I think is quite divorced from the actual reality reality of the marketing landscape. I think you know the other thing is um, you as marketers need to try and have more influence actually on the quality of the product that they're marketing or the service or that full end-to-end experience of, you know, purchasing something. And, yep. and so how can marketers not just try and bring more people to yep. purchase it, but how can they influence actually what that thing is, that service is, to improve it? Because things which are good just get found on the planet very quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. So and. Almost including a feedback loop into part of the marketing. From yeah, but also yeah, also driving you know driving actual input into product and service development and improvement. Interesting. Um, we have a very strong view that the actual usage is so of of a, of a product or a service is so powerful these days. If that's kind of failing, it's it's out there in review land. It's out there on social media. People are going to know that it's not worth looking at 
yeah. before they even experience it themselves. So if you don't get that use, the use of a right for end users, your marketing's got a tough job because you're trying to fight all of the negative reviews or, and, and we, you would know from your own behavior, we live in this kind of multi-tab world where, you know, you've got five tabs open as you're doing your five. Goals. Yeah, well, <laughs> depends, but you know, people are doing, you know, people are smart around their, you know, their purchase decisions yep. and they're using the power of the crowd to actually understand, yep. you know, what, what do other people think about this thing that I'm considering? Yeah. Wow. And, so if, if you don't get the actual foundations right in, you know, as a brand delivering those things properly, you're going to get found out before someone even, so you don't know how many customers you're losing because your actual product or services is not, you know, not as competitive as perhaps someone else's. So that customer journey extends all the way to usage and referral and, you know, that's got to be part of the marketing mix. It does. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And what about those tools that you mentioned, um, you know, all the different platforms that and technology that underpins lots of marketing now? Has it been made easier or harder for you because those tools are democratised to an extent that anyone with a laptop can pick up and compete with Fusion? Does that help or hinder? Um, I think there's always going to be a role for smart people to help organisations achieve things that they won't be able to achieve themselves. Um, even just from a kind of the being able to provide an external perspective or an informed perspective when you work up across multiple industries or have dealt with multiple circumstances in your kind of professional life. Yep. Um, I don't, you know, the, the technologies are always evolving, but I'm not sure that... I'm, I think they definitely help people achieve things which they weren't able to achieve, you know, say five, ten years ago, but you still actually have to have kind of a plan. You need to have a strategy in place. Yes. You need to you need to have some creativity to bring something to life. You need to know how to join up all those sort of technology kind of dots and, and work out what's it really mean and, and what's actually really going on. And so I think there's there's empowerment, but there's also at the same time, there's complexity. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of feels like, and that's what I'm saying, you know, it's hard to, I think it's hard to be a proficient marketer if you don't understand, really understand the, the kind of the technologies and also be an avid user, almost like pretending that you are actually a consumer. Put yourself in your in category. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because all of these platforms, I mean, there's literally the ecosystem for marketing is enormous and it continues to grow. So how do you um, join up all these dots when you've got social media, web apps, Google? You've got all these range of solutions. It almost requires people to be specialised in one of these verticals. And then across the top, you've got to join it all up. I mean, that sounds onerous and complex. Yeah, I think um, a really good sort of way of thinking about it is you need to be a conductor. You need to be a conductor and you've got an orchestra. And if you're a good conductor, you don't need to be a virtuoso violinist or know how they're going to play the oboe or whatever but you need to understand what kind of you know symphony you're trying to nice. you know, pull together yeah and i think i think yeah no one can be you know an expert in all of the areas yeah. so but you need to then so therefore you need to sort of have you know leadership and strategic skills to be able to bring those people together and, and get them aligned and get them working together to achieve the you know the desired the desired outcome and then also be mindful that you know probably unlike a symphony which has been tested over time, that that you're going to need to be able to kind of iterate it and, and learn from actually what you're doing. So look at the data, 
and, and look at the outcomes, positive and negative, yeah. and then be going into that kind of, you know, build, measure, learn type cycle. So, you know, that's probably another thing where, um, you know, for, for maybe traditional marketers, there's always this, like, oh, the thing is done now. You know, I've delivered the TVC or, you know, I've, the printed thing is finished. Whereas I think we're in a world where you need to be more fluid and really, you know, taking the inputs from when you do put something out there or put multiple things out there and work out which ones are going better or performing better and then tune it and then keep tuning. And it's that sort of always on iterative kind of, iterative kind of cycles. I think the other thing when you were talking about technology, Tony, is that one of the things we've noticed is organisations tend to overbuy. They will buy all these like, you know, customer experience kind of platforms or personalization engines. Yep. And then we generally not use very little of it. Yeah. So, you know, any advice I could say is start simple. Don't try and overcomplicate things. You know, start with the kind of the basics, get those kind of right, and then start layering up, you know, based on learning rather than go, if I don't have the tool, I can't solve that problem. Yeah, it's interesting because these tools create so much data and there's a, you know, a dashboard with every insight imaginable and then there's other dashboards you can overlay over the dashboards to aggregate it up. And a lot of this information is actually not that useful. So when you start organically, you actually are able to delve into the insights in, I think, a much more meaningful way Mm -hmm. and focus on those activities that actually drive behaviour rather than a whole lot of stuff, which might look good on a dashboard or a, or a one-pager, it actually doesn't drive the, the revenue needles or the product needles that hard. Yeah, I think it, 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 it is easy to get lost in the, the fog of data. And it's, it's, it's I, and I just pull it back. It it's actually goes back to the basics of really having a well kind of developed strategy and then always be testing what you're doing against the kind of the strategy. And, and, and strategies need to be adaptive as well. They need to change, like, you know, you can't take, like, a three-year view in the world we're working. You can have a sort of a three-year feeling, but you, you need to be able to adapt it. Things change overnight. Yeah. And what about then your business then, you know, in that backdrop of rapidly moving technology and marketing intersecting? Yep. As a business, have you ever had to go, oh, we need more capital to bring more people on or expertise or... Uh, have you really done this organically throughout its life? Um, well, both Fusion and Halux have, have grown organically, yeah. so we've you know we've never you know we've never taken in capital to to do what we wanted to do, but we've you know we've had kind of plans and specific directions. So we you know we may have taken a hit in terms of we're investing in we need to learn about a, a particular kind of technology. Um, so that we can then, you know, get some kind of runs on the board or really understand it. I've always been a, you know, I've always thought you can't really go and talk to someone about something if you haven't got actually tried using it yourself. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll go and prototype some AR on a phone or something to work out. How does it really work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what could we achieve with this? You know, what's the kind of the grammar of it? What are the possibilities, limitations? And get our heads around it through, you know, off our, and on our own dime. And then go, all right, well, you know, in our kind of client world, is there any way that, that this has any kind of viability to a problem they're, they're trying to solve or how could it differentiate what they're doing in the marketplace? So um, we've, we've always been kind of self-funding in, in, in that respect. You've obviously, uh, you know, seen a lot, been exposed to a lot as a, as a business owner, business leader, entrepreneur. What's now your core philosophies on business? 
That's a, that's a big question. Um, there's, I think, you know, there's really lots of learnings that I've had over the years and hopefully one day I'll get time to actually put them together into some kind of format that I can, you know, a book or a short guide or something to kind of share them with other people. Um, look, it depends on what sort of category or area of business you're talking about. Um, talk to me then about culture. Uh, the, big, the big C question. I think um, culture is a really interesting thing because it, it often gets referenced or evidenced in the physicality of, of things. You know, you know, people have got ping pong tables and, um, you know, there's free lunch every day and that type of thing. And that can often mask a bad culture. Yep. I think, you know, culture is really more around how the attitudes and behaviours of the individuals and how they interrelate within an organisation, how they can make decisions, how they feel, you know, how they actually emotionally feel about you know, coming, coming and doing what they do every day and having kind of a, a clear view on what they're, what they're trying to achieve and, and also what they'll feel comfortable in terms of questioning or pushing, etc. So I think culture is more around how values of an organisation yep. are lived, not spoken about. You know, I remember you were talking earlier about working at Telstra and it's like lots of organisations like that. And I don't know if it's the same at Telstra, but they'll create, you know, values and put them on a poster on the wall. Oh, yeah. And then people will be behaving very differently yes. in front of that poster. Yeah. But it's like, well, there's the, there's the culture on the wall. Yeah. That's not the culture. The culture is actually the way those individuals are interacting. Yes. Um, in, in it. So I think you can... You can definitely influence culture through your environment, um, but but you can't. Your environment's not going to create culture on, on its own. And yeah. I think the human interrelation aspects are where the rubber kind of hits the road. Yeah, on that one. Yeah, and you're obviously then leading by example. So again, as a business leader, have you evolved into this position of being a an open broker of? Uh, relationships and expectations and empowerment for staff or is it just a natural thing for Damien? Um, oh, I think there's de- definitely an, an evolution and there's always, there's always learnings along the way and, and there's there's kind of, you know, you'll hit speed bumps or brick, brick walls that you need to kind of learn from, you know, yep. that sort of build, measure, learn thing Fosco was talking about earlier. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of you know, fusion, obviously... Organisations will generally, the culture will have some reflection of the people that, that found the business, but that's not the, the entire culture. That's only you know one or two people. But you do, you do kind of, you should, in my view, set some kind of structure around what your expectations are in terms of you know the value system that you would like working within your organisation and the way you would like um, you know people to you know interrelate with each other and the way you would like to have you know. The interrelationships between you know your organisation and the outside world, you know that's a, you know with your partners and with your kind of clients yeah. and your advisors, you know they're all part of your kind of ecosystem as a business. Um, you know, so so very early in the in the day, we defined our you know our kind of purpose, our why, and that's around creating experiences people love, and that's been really sort of a, a kind of our kind of bedrock that we've you know used from the outset, and when we kind of you know worked through getting to those four words in that combination it was sort of around well you know when we started and we had nothing what were we, what were we trying to achieve 
we were just trying to do awesome work yeah and and create create awesome experience and 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 the work we do is digital so therefore people have to lean in and actually participate so it's a it's an experience and if you don't love it you'll just lean lean away and not go there again so that was really trying to encapsulate the essence of to what you know what digital experience was about cool um yeah and but also make it timeless that it was in you know it didn't matter what technology or era that we were doing it in that our kind of purpose would have you know longevity and it seems just you know for us it stood the test of time because we developed that you know probably two or three years in to our kind of you know evolution and then and then and then really supporting that we've got kind of four kind of core values that sit underneath that kind of purpose um, which are more around the the behaviours and that we kind of expect within the team, and they're also we also use them as kind of filters when we're um, you know interviewing new people to add into yeah. the team. So we have um, our kind of four values of being aware, being clear, being responsible, being brave. And so when we basically sit down and talk to a new kind of candidate, we've got a whole lot of questions that sit under those kind of categories. Just to tease out and see what a potential candidate's kind of viewpoint is around those four values, and see is there alignment there? Is this person going to fit into our kind of culture based on our values, or yes. are they not? Yeah. Um, and we use those um, values when we're also assessing new business opportunities. Um, so if there's something that comes along and it doesn't really fit within the, within our kind of values, then it's like that's that's not for us. Yeah. Because it's not going to work. Yeah, we're going to be from the beginning. The fit's not going to be there. Misaligned. Yeah. So yeah. I think you know, if anything, if anything, I've learned is sometimes when we've, we've when we've avoided using the values as the kind of the filter, we've ended up in a bad place. Yeah. And it's our own fault for basically not yeah. staying focused on on using those values as a kind filter i think it's also a great principle for life as well (laughs) you can end up in a bad place if you're not true to your values yeah i think it's yeah it's sure as night follows day Mm. um what about your entrepreneurial side because you're an advisor on uh different boards and around australia um you're obviously sought out for this kind of uh, expertise you bring to the table what's your guiding principle on on entrepreneurship and advising and assisting other businesses um look i think being honest is really important i probably get myself into a little bit of trouble sometimes too because i'll when i'm hearing fluff at the table i'll call it yeah or i'll I'll, no can we have can we drill into that question and get an answer so i think but generally there'll be some other people in the room thinking the same question but they weren't brave enough to kind of push the point so I think that's important to kind of drill in and, and ask those kind of tough questions. Um, you know, I think in terms of entrepreneurialism is a it's a big it's a big topic. Um, the, you know, the world the world has enormous opportunity, and you know, people can just create whatever they want. I, you know, I think it's amazing what humans can achieve, and. Often it's just around them having the right things around them to help them, you know, kickstart. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's where... And it might be that you need to have the right team or the right environment or the right amount of capital and the right kind of business plan. So it's, a, it's around finding... It's around evaluating those things correctly, you know, 
path looking where an organisation wants to kind of get to, and then and then making sure you've kind of got the right inputs and you can you know pull the different levers at the right time to get get that kind of venture where it needs to go yeah. to. Um, but I also think you know it's it's always interesting too because you know businesses are essentially people yes. working together. Yeah, and there's always like challenges and nuances and what makes people tick and what they really want to achieve and trying to get to the number of those things yeah. earlier rather than later yes. is probably a good thing as well yeah. to not let things get off track later when when the stakes are perhaps higher. Okay, I'm going to go from the, um, the deep philosophical cultural question and entrepreneurial question into the quick fire round, which is a bit of getting to know you and a bit of levity to finish off. Uh, who's your favourite comedian? Oh, Billy Connolly. Tennis player? Oh, I just like McEnroe because of his, his volatility. Combustible. Yeah. Entertainment, you know, sports entertainment. And he was an entertainer. Favourite band? The Smiths. Um, favourite artist? Hmm. I've always liked Escher. Uh Fondest childhood memory? Oh, I remember I built a, um, a Lego kind of kit that was sort of like a quasi kind of computer and you could feed stuff in and it ended up sort of drawing kind of, it actually drew some kind of shapes. And yeah, so that was quite an achievement at quite a young age. I remember I nailed it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Most memorable smell? Uh, uh, I think that is it sodium in science at school where it's like really pungent kind of smell where you burn something. Remember that from physics class, the yeah. physics lab. Yeah. Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. What is the kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? I love you. Um, what's next for Damien Mayer? Probably slowing down a little bit. Is that the mantra for 2020? Just to smell the roses a bit more? Yeah, I think we've, we've kicked some good goals recently and um, I think it'd be good. I'd like to actually you know, just spend some time actually putting together some of the learnings I've had over the past couple of decades in what I've been doing. I think some people on the planet might be interested in some of those, those topics. I've picked up a couple of nuggets of gold this morning. Some people will definitely be interested in your views on the world. Well, listen, Damien, thank you very much for your time away from Fusion this morning. Thank you for your time to meet me in Adelaide today and chat. Thank you for being a guest on Discipline. Pleasure. Great. Nice